we'll be looking at verses 14 through 18 today. So Luke chapter 16, and we'll be considering verses 14 through 18. I do well. We're all turning there. Just let me remind you of our of the men's retreat in May. We do have a backpacking trip this weekend, but I, the men's retreat in May is just a good time. You don't have to carry a backpack. You don't have to cook your own food, and you don't have to sleep on the ground. All right. So. For some of us, that's really enjoyable, and, and we like that, but uh, I would encourage you, the, the, the men's retreat is an opportunity to, uh, to go and, and uh, to fellowship with probably a couple hundred other, other men to get to know some guys, um, and it's an opportunity to draw near to the Lord, to draw near to one another, to have real meaningful conversations, and uh, build strong relationships, and it's been a great blessing, and I would hope that you would consider If you've gone before, that you'd consider going again. If you have never gone, then I would would highly recommend that you put that on your calendar and make time in your schedule for for that. So, with that little bit of advertising out of the way, let's go ahead and continue to look at Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. And I don't know, have you ever gotten home after a long day and you look in the mirror and there prominent on your big tooth is a piece of spinach or a piece of kale or something. Well, in my case, a piece of Oreo. Um, I don't know that I'd have kale. But there it is and all day long you've been wandering around with this big blob of food in your mouth and it's not till you get home and you look in the mirror that you see, oh my God, Goodness, have I been wandering around all day with that? When did that happen? And why didn't anybody tell me? Are you just ashamed to admit it? Well, you might wonder, in what way does having kale on your teeth have anything to do with Luke chapter 16? And, well, I'm not going to tell you yet. But as we go through the passage today, we might see that this um, has some bearing on on what we want to look at in in our passage. So let me get in a little bit and remind ourselves where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. We are preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and that's just kind of what we do. We we look at uh, an entire book of the Bible, and we consider... Uh, and, and we go through it verse by verse, and, and, and we draw the meaning out, out of the text. We don't, um, you know, we really believe here that, that, that God's Word is already really good, that we just don't need to add much to it, or really anything. Maybe illustrate it, or, you know, put it in, in terms that are uh, um, uh, in a contemporary context. But, you know, God's Word is already really good. And if we just draw the meaning out of the text... We'll go out of here blessed and uh, encouraged and strengthened, perhaps convicted. And so today we want to look at God's Word. And one of the things we want to do is make sure that we understand the context of, of the passage of that, that we're looking at. And this particular section of text, a number of Bible students have looked at this and just think that it's so out of place because it's... The subject matter that precedes it and the subject matter that um, follows it 
uh, are both about Jesus talking about a person's relationship with finances. They have to do with money. And this passage of text really doesn't deal with any of that. And so people, and especially verse 18, all of a sudden there's this passage about divorce and remarriage. And, and what does that have to do with anything we're talking about? And so many Bible students have been confounded by why this is here. And of course, some of the more liberal persuasion just say, well, some editor sometime long after the Gospel of Luke was written added this. And like he didn't understand the idea of context or flow or anything like that. But this is God's word. And there's nothing out of place. In fact, I think as we look at this, we're going to see that it fits so beautifully and so perfectly into what Jesus is saying. And so, just to give you a brief overview of, of what we're going to do, and then perhaps an outline, just an overview. Uh, this is a, another confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he is identifying the fact that they look really good on the outside, but inside they are utterly corrupt. They have an inward sin, but it is cloaked by outward self-justification. They have justified themselves, made themselves look good, but inwardly they are um, filled with just, they are like whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside they're filled with dead men's bones. And that's where this text, um, that's kind of one of the big issues of this particular passage of text. And so I'm going to, um, I think in your notes, I have a little bit of an outline there. The first thing we want to deal with, and I'm going to take this a little bit out of order. Uh, um, just use a little bit of creative license. But the first thing we want to deal with is Jesus is going to identify and expose the idolatry of the Pharisees. And then he is going to give them an example of how they justify themselves. And how they've twisted and manipulated God's word so that they can continue in their perverse way of life. And then finally, we will look at the remedy and how Jesus proposes um, that this issue gets dealt with. So let's, let's look at God's word. Luke chapter 16, I'll read verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Father, we give you praise and thanks for your inerrant and holy word. And we pray, Father God, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to convict us, to show us your truths, Lord God, that we might align our lives um, to what you have revealed. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. So Jesus has just told a parable about, or just talked about, um, the issue between the disciple and their possessions. So what is the relationship between a disciple and, and his possessions? And now he begins this section, or Luke begins this section, with Jesus speaking, his, um, with um, Luke commenting that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And that they'd heard all these things, that is, Jesus' 
understanding or Jesus' words or actually Jesus' revelation of the disciple and his possession and the Pharisees ridiculed him because they were lovers of money. And so first of all, we should note that um, it's sad that they are identified as lovers of money and not lovers of God because they portrayed themselves as lovers of God. But the reality is that they were lovers of money. What a, what a sad thing. This was a facade. We put out the impression that we are lovers of God, but that is just merely a front. They are actually lovers of money. They have something else that they love more than God. And I just... And perhaps as we go through and as we've gone through the book of Luke, we can see that they they loved many things other than God. They loved their positions of power. They loved their positions of prominence. They loved their possessions. They loved a lot of different things. They loved to be recognized in public and, oh, hello, rabbi, and given the finest seats. They loved these things. What we do not see of them is that they were lovers of God. And I thought to myself as I was praying through this, I prayed, Lord God, how are we identified? How am I identified? When people speak of us, will they say, you know what? They're lovers of God. Or will they say they love something else? They love something else even more. And so, this, uh, this idea of being uh, a, a person who is consumed with material with materialism, this idea of being a lover of money, is roundly condemned in Scripture. We see it throughout Scripture being something that is not a characteristic of the person of God. First of all, we see in 1 Timothy um, chapter 3, verse 2, as a leader, a person who leads God's people needs to be free from the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 2, therefore an overseer, that is an elder or a pastor. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Then over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verse 10, we see the same thing. Only this is um, dealing with a broader audience, not just the leaders of a church. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It is a... The love of money is a root of many kinds of evil. It draws us away from the truth of God. It draws us away from loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we see numerous passages of text that deal with this condemnation of being a lover of money because then we are easily manipulated. But the Pharisees were lovers of money. And it says that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard or listened to all the things that Jesus was, was saying. They heard him, but they did not have ears to hear. You'll recall that tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear what he had to say. In fact, Jesus said, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the very next verse, and I believe it's in chapter 15, says, and tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear what Jesus had to say. The Pharisees heard what Jesus had to say, but they did not have ears to hear. It did not penetrate their lives. It did not change them. It did not affect the way they lived. Their idolatries had hindered their ability 
to hear. And, and, and um, Isaiah puts this out, and Jesus also um, um, picks up what Isaiah says in regards to why he tells parables. He says, I speak in parables. Why do I speak in parables? So that hearing they may not hear and seeing they may not see. In other words, I, I think that how I understand that passage from the book of Isaiah that Jesus is quoting is ultimately we, we see that same description of idols. They have ears to hear, but they cannot hear, and they have eyes to see, and they cannot see, and they have mouths to speak, and they cannot talk, and they can't they have feet, but they cannot stand. We have to make a base so that the idol does not topple over. In other words, when we, when we consider these passages of text, that the people become like that which, which, which they worship. We become like our idols. And the, the Pharisees have become men who have ears but cannot hear the revelation of God because they have become like their idols that are deaf, dumb, and blind. And so they hear the words of revelation. They hear the word of God come down from heaven and speak the truths of heaven. And they have, and instead of bowing the knee or saying, tell us more, we don't understand, or searching the scriptures, instead they scoff. Instead, they mock the very words of God. Faced with the revelation of Jesus regarding the use of possessions, instead of saying, huh, I wonder if that's speaking to me, instead they opt to mock the Son of God. So we see that they begin to ridicule or scoff or mock at Him. I find it interesting that in chapter 15, verse 2, it tells us that the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus. That is, they murmured, and now they're no longer just murmuring under their breath. They're no longer just grumbling so that the immediate, those in their immediate presence might hear what they have to say, but they are scoffing openly. They are mocking. And they are demeaning the one who brings heaven's truths. The idea here of ridiculing has to do the idea of turning your nose up at something. And so, it is turned from a note of private murmuring amongst the peer to an open mocking intended to discredit the messenger. And if you can discredit the messenger, you discredit the message. Don't listen to what the man has to say. Basically, by scoffing and mocking at him, they are saying that you, Jesus, are beneath us. You, as the bearer of God's revelation, we outright and completely reject what you have to say. And not only do we reject what you have to say, we intend that everybody else reject what you have to say. We are going to influence others so that they also reject everything you say. This is not a private grumbling. This is not, well, I just kind of disagree with the, what the man is saying. No, it is, I disagree with what he is saying. He is beneath me, and everybody in the sound of my voice needs to also reject what he has to say. And so our text opens up because Jesus has talked about God's use of possession and being good stewards of all the things that God has given us. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, began to scoff and openly deride the person, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. Because he's bringing, God, he's bringing the true revelation of God. Another thing we should think about here, and that is that um, 
this issue of mocking as a aspect of discipleship. In other words, um, I guess we're, we're not above our master. And if they mock Christ for his being, quote, out of touch with the way things are, we should not be surprised when we as his followers are mocked as well. And Jesus did not back down from telling the truth. And so we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, also need to put forth the truth of God, but do not be um, shocked when people are not readily accepting of, of the, the truth of God. And so it be, this passive text begins with um, Pharisees mocking Christ because he brought them God's truth in regards to material possessions. And then, and then Jesus goes on, he says, You're those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, they, they, they endeavor to demonstrate to other people that they are righteous. That is, they just put on, they put on a, a, a facade, they put on an outward uh, appearance. They, they want others to see their righteous. They want others to see them as righteous, but they don't really want to be righteous. They just want other people to think they're righteous. They only, so, so they appear outwardly as one thing, but inwardly they are completely some, something else. Well, men see only the outward act. They, um, for instance, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, Now when you give alms, don't do it so that you put it on a display before men. But when you give alms, do it in secret. Because the Pharisees love to give alms, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they did it to, to garner the approval of men. They put on a big show. And I think one of the great places we, we see that is uh, with the issue of the widow's might when she puts in that one little coin. Well, when they would give their alms at the temple, there was these big brass tubes that they would pour their money into. So when they would do it, they would make sure that it made a big, loud noise. Um, when all those coins, they don't have paper money. So all those brass or silver coins are going down and all of a sudden, everyone, boy, there's, there's a big donation going on over there. And there are the Pharisees, all dressed in their robes, appearing to be righteous. This is why it's interesting, because when the widow gives her little mite, in the contrast, one little coin. Jesus says, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. And so they, they appear outwardly righteous. Jesus says, you know, you tithe mint and dill. In other words, you are so precise in your tithes. But then you don't even take care of your own parents. When it comes to giving to your parents, you say it's Corban. In other words, it's given to God. And so you tithe to the, to the penny. And you're proud of it. Look. I made $137.52 and I tithe exactly. thirteen seventy five. Point two, so I can, I'll round that down to thirteen seventy-five. If I made one hundred and thirty-seven dollars and fifty-seven cents, I might round that up. Make sure I got it all. But when it comes to taking care of my own parents, are you? Oh well, you know what? I'm going to give it to God. 
says, man, you do all these things for outward actions, but, and, and everybody thinks you're righteous, but your hearts are wicked. In other words, they dress up their filth in order to appear righteous. We take the filth that is in our hearts and we, I guess it's, to be cliche, we put lipstick on a pig. And that's what they're trying to do. And Jesus is saying, man, it's a pig. It's a pig. I don't care how you dress it up. So the words of Jesus now have exposed their charade and it brings them to a place of repentance or self-justification and they choose the latter. The words of Jesus bring them to a place of repentance. Or, and that's what the words of, uh, Word of God does. The Word of God brings us to a place where we either need to bow the knee and say, yeah, I need to get my life in line with what God has said, or I guess there are a couple of responses we might outright reject and just say that's meaningless and has no bearing on my life. But far too often what people do is try to change God's word to fit their life. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were manipulating God's word so that it would justify, they could justify their sinful actions. And Jesus says, but the thing that is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, here we see this, this clash of values. The values of the world and the values of the kingdom are colliding. That is what God calls evil, men call good, and vice versa. And we just see that so oftentimes. And, and, and it's one thing, folks, I don't want us looking out into the world. We can say, oh, well, you know, all of those sinners out there, they're calling evil good and good evil. What I want us to do is let's look at believers. Let's look at ourselves. Am I trying to justify that which does not align with God's revelation and trying to manipulate God's word so that it justifies my life? Or am I saying, no, you know what? I need to change. My life needs to change. It needs to come into conformity uh, with the word of God and I'm going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable me to do those things. And so the values of the world and the values of the kingdom collide. And so what men call evil um, or what God calls evil, men call good. And the Pharisees are, try, are adding loopholes to the law so that they can reinterpretate the clear commands of God's word to allow their sin. They reinterpret God's law so that they can get away. They can, they can sin and still, quote, be justified. They can still be righteous before men. And people can say, oh, look how great those, those Pharisees are. Look how, look how righteous, look how much they love God. They don't love God, they love money. I want us to understand that as disciples, as followers of Christ, we will constantly battle against the values of the world and the kingdom. Because the values of the kingdom are completely different from the values of the world. It's popularity and uh, the things that are, make us accepted in in the world are oftentimes valueless in regards to the kingdom. And so it, it is with this setup that I want to move on to verse 18 because verse 18 seems uh, so out of place and so odd to be sitting here that all of a sudden now Jesus is teaching about divorce and remarriage and, and people wonder, why is he teaching about that? Well, I'll tell you, he's not... His, his, 
purpose here is not so much to teach about divorce and remarriage. This is not an exhaustive treatment on the biblical position on divorce and remarriage. What he's doing here is he's using this as an example of how you guys justify yourselves. This is how you reinterpret God's law to justify your perversions. You have sinned against God, and instead of aligning yourself with God's purpose, you have manipulated God's word to say what you wanted to say to justify your actions. And this is what's going on. And you recall a very famous conversation that Jesus had with the, with the religious leaders. And they asked Jesus, can a, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And there was a school of thought, a very liberal school of thought, that said a man can divorce his wife for whatever reason he wants. If he just gets tired of her, or I find, or he finds somebody else that he prefers, then he can put away his wife and go after another. For whatever reasons. So this comes up. Jesus doesn't get into that debate. Jesus says, don't you know what God said from the very beginning? That God created the male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife. So Jesus takes them all the way back to the very beginning. They're debating over various laws and interpretations of laws, and Jesus takes them back to the very beginning. But they're of the opinion, oh, well, I want to be able to, to engage in my own passions and lusts, and I'm going to manipulate God's Word so that I can, so that I can justify my wickedness. This is what they're doing. They look good on the outside. So they reinterpret God's law and says that, oh, you can go ahead and divorce your wife for whatever reasons you want. And it's just fine. And they can continue to walk around in their robes that, that make them look like they're uh, noble teachers of God's word. They are well respected in, in the community. They are highly regarded amongst their peers. And even though they are living lives that are in complete violation to what God has originally intended. But they've manipulated, they've manipulated God. So they've manipulated God's word. So Jesus gives this example of divorce and remarriage, um, not so much as an exhaustive treatment on divorce and remarriage, but to as an example of you justify yourselves. Here's how you justify yourselves. God says you are to remain with your wife forever, and you have decided, no, I don't want to do that, so how can I make God's law say what I want it to say to justify my wicked actions? That's what's going on. And Jesus is saying, you justify yourself. Here's an example. You want an example? Here it is. We see, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I think one of the greatest threats to the Christian church, I, I suppose it's been historically, but uh, it seems like we're at a place in time where this same thing is at such a, a critical juncture. Because there is such a push today to reinterpret what God's Word has said and how God's Word has been understood since the beginning of time. To reinterpret our morals, our ethics, our ways of life, our understanding of human dignity and the value of life, 
when we, when we think of what is now being called progressive Christianity, which is probably just old liberal Christianity, but has taken on and morphed a little bit differently and would say that social justice is the highest good. And the idea that the, that the scriptures speak authoritatively, that's been abandoned or is being abandoned. You can't really trust God's word or it has no value to the way we live our lives today. And so therefore the value of life, the understanding of how mankind was created in the image of God has no bearing any longer. Or it can be fudged, it can be, be manipulated. In other words, God's word is malleable we can make it say whatever we want so that it'll justify our actions. In other words, the whole idea of repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, has absolutely no value whatsoever. Why? Because there's nothing to repent of. Why do you repent? When you can just take God's word and twist it and justify what you're doing. Now, I think this is one of the reasons why John says, the person who says he has no sin is a liar and makes God a liar. And I have to tell you, for years in my life, when I, especially as a young believer, and for many years I looked at that passage of text, I'm going, I don't get it. Because I don't know of anybody who says they're without sin. So I, I, I'm of an age where people would say, yeah, well, I sin, and you know what, yeah, I, I do a lot of things wrong, and uh, yeah, I know I've got to clean a lot of things up in my life, but... They would give a but. But there was always the acknowledgement that, yeah, there's stuff in my life. And yeah, you know, yeah, you know, steal stuff from the office. I know that's not right. But hey, my boss, he's a, he's a wealthy man. He's got, you know, 10 cars. And he can, he can afford if I take a couple reams of paper and, you know, take lunch, you know, from the petty cash. It's okay. I know it's wrong. But it's not hurting anybody. Nowadays, the idea of, oh no, I don't do anything wrong. All of a sudden, this idea of the person who says he has no sin, is I'm seeing it all around us because what we've done is we've taken God's word and said, it doesn't mean what it means. It means that actually we need to ignore that and we'll, we'll change it and twist it so that I can live however I want to live. And I can do whatever I want to do. And when confronted with God's word, we will simply ignore it or change it. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus uses this issue of divorce and remarriage in their lives to demonstrate that, listen, you are not applying God's, you are not conforming to God's law, rather you're having God's law conform to your lives. And that is utterly and completely backwards. So, you, you justify yourselves. And let me give you an example. Here's the example. So, Looking back then at verses um, 16 and, and 17, we, we, I, I want to look now um, at, at the remedy. So, so we have these, 
these religious leaders who are justifying themselves and living out the lives that they want to live and manipulating and perverting God's word to align with their perversions. And Jesus is saying, this is not acceptable, so what's the remedy? Well, I think in 16 and 70, we have a good, good remedy. And, and here it says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, so here's the thing. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating. You weren't here, maybe you weren't here, or maybe you've forgotten, or maybe you've never really heard this idea. And that is the value of God's law. The law is really important. And sometimes we operate as though, well, we're under grace, and so the law has no bearing on our lives, and that's utterly and completely false. God's law is utterly perfect, and it is good. And Jesus says not one dot will, take away, will, will be taken away from it. And I wish I had a visual for it. I didn't, didn't make any visuals today. But really what he's talking about is that in the Hebrew letters, um, there's a resh and a dalith. And the resh has an R sound. Dalith has a, a, um, a D sound to it, and they look almost exactly the same, except one has a little sharp point on it. One's curvy, and one has a little sharp point. That little dot, that little hook that separates the D from the R is what Jesus is talking about. Not even that smallest, teeny little stroke. Not that, that will not disappear from the law. The law is still good. Because the law does exactly what it's supposed to do. The law functions as a mirror let you know that you've got a piece of kale or Oreo sticking on your tooth and you need to do something about it. The law is, as we've often talked about, is an x-ray machine or an MRI machine. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It reveals that there's a problem. But here's the thing with a mirror or an x-ray machine or an MRI machine. They can reveal, but they cannot fix the mirror cannot fix the kale in your teeth. For that, you need a toothpick or a toothbrush or your finger or something. A glass of water. The x-ray can tell you that there is a problem, that you have a broken bone. But we do not ask the x-ray machine to fix our broken bone. It is perfect for what it does, but it is horrible at fixing the problem. And this is exactly the way the law is. The law serves as a mirror. The law serves as an x-ray. It tells us where the problem is. The, pr the issue, however, is if we think that the law can fix the problem, then we are in big trouble. And this is where Jesus comes in. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, in other words, the, the law was speaking of the promise. The law spoke to, and it talked about the coming of Christ. The law reveals our problems, but the law has no mechanism to fix our problem. And I read somewhere, somebody said, I thought this was worth saying. Our problem is not our problem. Our problem is that we do not know that we have a problem. I wish I'd said that. 
Our problem is not our problem. Our problem is that we do not know that we have a problem. And so the law comes and tells us, we got a problem. And it's not tail on your tooth. And it's not even a broken bone. It's the fact that you have sinned against a holy God and He's going to hold you accountable. And we don't even know. Be like somebody going in for an MRI and uh, just or for a routine X-ray or something, and it reveals something life-threatening. You didn't even know you had the problem until they slid you in the tube, and you went for one thing, and you come out going, "Oh my goodness, we got a real problem." And the problem we didn't know it was there until we X-rayed it. And this is what the law does: it tells us there's a problem, and so. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Luke identifies two parts to God's plan, promise and fulfillment. The law, that is the promise, is proclaimed until John the Baptist. Since his time, the kingdom or fulfillment is being preached. The kingdom has come. The Old Testament looked forward to the coming kingdom. Now the kingdom has come and the king is present. That is, the way of God is found in his kingdom preaching, the Pharisees were scoffing at the preaching of the kingdom. But their scoffing carried no authority. The only authority is Jesus' words or his exhortations on how to walk with God. So I guess maybe we should ask ourselves, what is the good news of the kingdom? If John came, if the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom is being preached we should probably figure out or identify what is the good news of the kingdom. And I'll put it this way. The way into the kingdom is not by having kept the law perfectly because nobody has ever kept the law perfectly. And it's not, it's certainly not as the Pharisees were trying, by trying to find loopholes to the law that it will get you into the kingdom. So the good news isn't that we are to keep the law perfectly. Nobody has. Nor is the good news, well, let's find some loopholes so that I at least look good. The good news is this, that the way into the kingdom is by God's gracious forgiveness of those who repent. Because you see, the law cannot forgive you. The law was never designed to forgive you. The law can tell you of your need for forgiveness, but it can't actually forgive you. Only the gospel, only the blood of Christ offers that forgiveness. And Jesus has come preaching the good news of the kingdom. Only Christ can forgive you. Only God can forgive forgive you through the work of Jesus Christ and it is repentance and faith whereby we lay hold of that forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ. The kingdom's arrival represents the culmination of the law's function. The law was pointing to the kingdom all the time. It was, its values and morals are determined by the king and the Pharisees respond by scoffing. And let me just make a, a brief comment on this rather difficult passage here um, where it says, and everyone is the, that the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. And uh, I was just going to ignore that, but I can't. Because what, is that, what in the world is Jesus talking about? This is a notoriously difficult passage of text notoriously difficult. And it hinges around two different things, and that is the word force. Um, and um, I'm sorry to get technical on you, but, but the voice, is this, a middle, is, this, is this a passive or is this a middle voice thing? And so in any, anyways, there are voices in, 
in Greek. Well, we have voices. We have active and passive verb, verb tenses. And so the question is, is this middle um, or is it passive? If it's middle, it's basically this. Is force being applied? Is the force being applied by everyone? Passive would be, is the force being applied to everyone? Here's how it works out. The middle voice would say this, because middle and passive voice in Greek are, the, are spelled the exact same way. You just determine it by context. So here's what it would say. If it's middle, it says, um, as if you have an ESV, this is they're understanding it in the middle voice, that the good news of the kingdom is preached and everybody is forcing his way into it. Or everybody is, is, is being forced into it. Or they're, they're forcing themselves into it. And the idea here is that the kingdom of God is being preached and sinners and tax collectors are gathering and cramming their way into the kingdom. But also, Pharisees and Sadducees are also forcing their way into it by manipulating God's word. In other words, it's kind of square peg into round hole. The Pharisees are trying to get in on their own, by their own means. They're, they're trying to get in by their own efforts. They're forcing their way in. You can't do it. You've got to come through the gospel. The other way would be a passive, and that would be um, if you have like an NIV, the NIV, I think, in the, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, understand this as a, as a passive, and it would go something like this. The good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everybody is urgently invited to participate. That would be the idea. Probably tend to lean more to, well, I don't know which way I lean. Depends which day I'm reading it. But I will tell you this, regardless of how we are to understand this. You cannot come to the gospel on your own terms. If you're going to hold to a, a middle voice on this, the bottom line is this. You cannot come to the, to the kingdom on your own terms. You need to come on the terms of Christ, that Christ is laid down. You cannot force your way into the kingdom. You cannot make yourself righteous. You cannot create loopholes and say, look how good I look. That will not get you into the kingdom of God. You must come on the terms that Christ has given if you want to understand this in, in the passive sense, this is it. You are now being urgently invited. The king has come. The kingdom is available. And you are urgently being invited to participate in what the king is offering. Either way, folks. Either way. Christ has come. The law has revealed our, our ailment. The law has revealed our problem. And the gospel has revealed the remedy. And Jesus is the bringer of the remedy. And so, the good news of the kingdom is that the law cannot tell you of your need for forgiveness. The law cannot forgive you. The gospel, however, offers forgiveness. Only Christ can forgive you. Only God can forgive you. And he does that through the work of Jesus Christ. And it is by repentance and faith where we lay hold of that forgiveness that is offered in Jesus. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has arrived. And it re represents the culmination of the law's functions. And so the king has come. And what are we going to do with it? Are we going to continue to create loopholes and make God's word 
uh, fit our lifestyle and our agenda? Or are we going to say, you know what, I need to align myself with God's purpose? What are we going to do? So I'll close with this. One of the big themes of this passage text is that of self-justification. It is self-justification. What I mean by self-justification is the attempt to enter God's kingdom on our own terms. I want to. I want to be part of the. I want to be part of the kingdom benefits. I just don't want anything to do with the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, "Sorry, if you're going to be part of the king, if you're going to reap the benefits of the kingdom, you need to become a citizen of the kingdom. And to become a citizen, you have to come on the terms of the king. The king establishes the terms of citizenship, and you must come on his terms. So, people who say, "Well, I want the benefits of the kingdom, but I just don't want to live under the authority of the king," makes Jesus say, "You can't do that." And so, under self-justification says, well, I want the benefits of the kingdom, but I don't want to to have to live under the authority of the king. And under the idea of self-justification, we become the standard, and the word of God is bent to conform us. But in the kingdom, the word of God is the standard, and we are to conform to it. So this is a pushback, this is a challenge to those who might seek to justify themselves. The action that is being called for is very simple. Repent of our sin and call upon the King's mercy. That's the action. It's not a very difficult passage of text. It has everything. It fits perfectly in what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the revealer of God's word. This is how God has revealed we are to relate to the possessions and the material things that we have. Do not scoff at God's revelation, but rather conform yourself to God's revelation. Repent of our sins and turn to the King and you will find abundant mercy. Let's stand and let's pray.